Sarah, I want to thank you for your wonderful reading of the story from Matthew about Herod and the wise men and the star. I was imagining uh, this week what it might be like if Herod had Twitter. (laughs) For example, so-called wise men, just foreign jokers, don't know what real power looks like. Sad. (laughs) Or, everybody knows I am the best king this country has ever seen, biggest coronation crowd ever. Uh, Or, birth of new king will win award for top fake news story this year. I am making this country great. You might imagine that it has been difficult for me to read the story about Herod's fear and self-congratulation and deception and longing for adulation without immediately seeing him mirrored in the administration currently in office in this country. Herod hears a rumor or indication that there is another king of the Judeans born in his vicinity And he is ready to use any means necessary to secure his own throne. And I say another because Herod is already the king of Judah, the king of the Judeans. He's been named so by the Roman emperor. It seems Herod loves the trappings of power. He likes to be feared, and he has no qualms about making threats and following through. If he had a desk with a button on it, it would be the biggest one, and his bombs would work too. His power is shaken then when astrologers from the east follow a prophecy and a star. The light of this new star takes them as far as Jerusalem, and they find Herod in his palace, the place they would expect to find a new king. And they ask him, so what is it about, what about this new king? We have presents. They have presumably been reading the text from Isaiah that Nancy read for us from Isaiah 60, the one about bright lights and shining hilltops, the royal city, Jerusalem, camels loaded with wealth, prosperity, opulent gifts. Herod is loath to give up his position and his title, and when Herod's power is shaken, he becomes jealous and fearful. Greatly disturbed is what uh, Sarah read. NRSV says he fears, and all of Jerusalem with him is fearful, and right they should be. When political leaders feel jealous and fearful of their power, They act with bluster and bravado. They threaten fire and fury, and it is no surprise that we should fear. No surprise that all Jerusalem is fearful. And so Herod begins his political maneuverings. He goes first to his advisors and tries to figure out what this fake news is all about. He has his think tanks and his cabinets. What have they missed? What has he not heard? Upon consultation, he hears that, in fact, the Magi, and maybe he too, should be examining not Isaiah 60, if they're looking for where another leader might be coming. 
This text, Isaiah 60, suggests that Jerusalem will be a shining jewel, an urban, prosperity, a, a prosperic, prosperous, urban hub ruled by elites. And that sounds a lot like status quo. Nothing is happening there. Maybe look to Micah and his advisors quote it to Herod. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall come and they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. Bethlehem, this little village a few miles away and nothing town. This micro-prophecy suggests that an altogether different kind of leader is coming. This micro-prophecy, according to Walter Brueggemann, is the voice of hope for the future. It is not impressed with high towers and great arenas and great urban achievements. It anticipates a common leader who will bring well-being to his people, not by great political ambition, but by attentiveness to people on the ground." End quote. The brilliant trappings of the urban elite, the beauty of palaces and golden toilets and economic wealth, is not the kind of kingdom that the star, the magi, were following was trying to illuminate. Those things are plenty illuminated on their own. Bethlehem just might hold something different. Hearing this doesn't make Herod less fearful. If anything, a rural or peasant uprising of any kind, he wants to squash that as soon as possible. So he makes a second political move. He takes the Easterners aside, and he straight up lies to them. He has a little backroom dealing, saying... He wants to go visit and worship this new king, too. Maybe he can learn more. The visitors take Herod's invitation at face value, and they go their way. If we were to read on in this story, we would find out what Herod's real motivation and intention is. Herod's fear and cruelty and suspicion of anyone who might be his competition even though he is wealthy and powerful and propped up by the Roman Empire, his fear and suspicion lead him to execute not only, as we hear in the story, all male infants under two, but members of his own family, his, one of his wives, his brother-in-law, and three of his own children. Wise as they are, the travelers don't know any of this nor do they yet know the identity of the one that they are seeking. We know from our vantage point, these thousands of years later, that Jesus' kind of power is of a different quality. Theologian Walter Wink writes a lot about Jesus and power. Jesus doesn't condemn ambition or aspiration, but he changes the values to which those are attached. Quote, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. 
He does not reject, reject greatness, but finds, in it, finds it in identification and solidarity with the needy at the bottom of society. Jesus does not renounce heroism, but expresses it by repudiating the power of death and confronting the unarmed, the unarmed, the entr- and confronting unarmed, the entrenched might of the authorities. That's a later Jesus. It's not the infant in the manger. But an unarmed infant in a manger is the kind of power that they will find. From from our vantage point, we know that the glint of the sword and shield and any kind of violence in aid of amassing power will be rejected by Jesus. The true power of the tiny, vulnerable infant is illuminated by the star that ultimately stops above a poor household in Bethlehem where Mary, Jesus' mother, resides with him and her betrothed. To their great credit... The Magi come seeking and expecting one kind of king, the kind found in palaces ornamented with gold and scented with frankincense. But when they see that the star has come to stop over a simple house of a poor family, even though they do not know what we do about who Jesus will become, they take it in stride. They see the light, as it were. It is amazing, Brueggemann says, the true accent of Epiphany that the wise men do not resist this alternative but go on to the village. Rather than hesitate or resist, they reorganize their wealth and learning. They reorient themselves and their lives around a baby with no credentials. I have a toddler. It is very difficult to imagine anyone seeing a small person like that, no matter how adorable or endearing, as a political force to be worshipped and adored. And yet they, expect one kind of king, expecting one kind of king, kneel with their gifts before a new Messiah. In fact, the text tells us they are overwhelmed with joy. It can be hard to see the gleam of the star when it is drowned out by light pollution of empire. There are different qualities of light to which can be, we can be drawn. And I think it can be hard to tell What is the true light? Which is the one that points the way to the little house in Bethlehem? The gleam of a golden toilet is just a golden toilet. But the star illuminating the path away from Jerusalem and and toward Bethlehem can be tough. It is a new year, this first Sunday, 2018. And a new year is often filled with bright lights and fireworks and glitter and sparklers. It is a cacophony of light. And throughout the season of Advent, as Beth said, and into Christmas, we have looked for and celebrated hope, peace, love, and joy in the midst of chaos. And although we sometimes think about chaos as darkness, maybe often, Sometimes chaos is the pollution of too much light. Just this morning on KUOW, maybe you heard it too, I heard a story about how the light pollution in the earth is growing so much that it's becoming hard to even see the night sky anymore. Except in places where there is war, where war has knocked out light sources, 
Everywhere else on earth, the light is only growing and growing. I have a friend in Saskatchewan who works for the Land Conservancy, and he's involved in creating dark sky places. And I can imagine that Saskatchewan in northern Canada is darker than many places on this earth, but even there, light continues to block out the stars. Too much of what our flashy culture wants to throw at us is a distraction. The square blue light of cell phones and iPads, the high-def LED of television, the red glare of the rocket, the neon crackle of consumerism. With Epiphany, we are reminded that we have a guiding light. And it is not as flashy, but it is consistent, a glow beyond the glare. A favorite hymn of mine, and I think of many of yours, is Beautiful Star of Bethlehem. I don't think we're singing it this morning, but I'll invite you to sing one verse with me. O beautiful star of hope and rest, for the redeemed, the good and blessed, yonder in glory when the crown is won. Jesus is now that star divine, brighter and brighter he will shine. Beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine on. This is a song that was authored by Edgar M. Pace more than 50 years ago. It is a beloved epiphany hymn. Jesus is now the star divine. May we be overjoyed, overjoyed with the news that Jesus is our star. May the constant starlight guide our way. May your star be Jesus in this new year, and may you have eyes to follow him alone. Amen.